Welcome to the Film Trooper podcast with your host, Scott McMahon. Hi, and welcome to Film Trooper, filmmaking freedom for the independent. This is the podcast where we focus on making and selling your film for online self-distribution. And a perfect way to get started is to pick up the book, How to Make and Sell Your Film Online and Survive the Hollywood Implosion While Doing It. It's available in paperback, as a Kindle ebook, and an audiobook. In fact, you can get the audiobook for free when you go to survivetheimplosion.com. By going to that URL, you can sign up with Audible for a free Audible trial for 30 days and get the book uh, for free. You can also pick up past Film Trooper guest Ben Yenny's book, The Gorilla Rep, American Film Market Distribution Success on No Budget. Ben just published his book as an audiobook version, and there are a lot of useful interviews at the end of his book for anyone thinking about playing in the world of the international film markets. You can learn more about the film markets in my last podcast episode, episode number 120. But for those of you who are looking to retain control when it comes time to make and distribute your film, then today's episode might be perfect for you. A lot of filmmakers have made or are planning to make a web series or a documentary. Some web series are more scripted and narrative in style, or some may be more documentary slash informational in style. But in the end, how do you make money from your web series or documentary series? And how do you make a living from your web series or documentary series? My guest today is Lucas Longacre, who, along with his wife, Kelly Cox, are the team behind the series The Original Fair, which was picked up by PBS for distribution, and you'll hear about that story later on. I met Lucas and Kelly when I was a moderator for a special panel on web series for the Portland Film Festival. You'll hear the audio quality is a little different than my previous episodes, as I met and recorded Lucas in his home studio. Anyway, their show, The Original Fair, follows Kelly as she travels all over the place to search for the best ingredients in the world. It's a food and travel show that takes their audience to the source of our food. And now it's just not just spices, it's also discovering where our meat comes from and how it's processed and packaged. It's definitely hit a nerve with this unique approach to the normal food and travel shows. You know, those types of shows that usually focus on some guy going to some restaurants and just stuffing their face with food. You know, that's their version of testing out, you know, um, what good foods are out there, but not really understanding where the food actually comes from. But they were able to strike a chord with, you know, viewers who wanted a deeper understanding of where their food is coming from and the story behind those foods. In addition to their successful web series, uh, which is also on TV, Lucas and Kelly made the documentary Big Dream in conjunction with Microsoft. Big Dream follows the stories of seven young women who are breaking barriers and overcoming personal challenges to follow their passions in STEM fields. And STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And you'll hear more about this project as well um, and how it was funded and all that kind of stuff later on in the episode. Some of the other big takeaways from this episode is understanding who your audience is. And I mean, really understanding who your audience is. Like in Lucas's case, it was one or two very specific people within a corporation that would become their biggest advocates. And you'll hear why having the right kind of advocates are important in laying the grounds, the groundwork for a sustainable career and a living as a filmmaker who makes web series and or documentary series. And without further ado, here's Lucas Longacre from Ironway Entertainment here on the Film Trooper Podcast. <laughs> but anyway, so we were talking earlier, because um, I was telling you, like, I know that my audience, like, the, the big clickbait topic would be like, well, how do you make money from a web series or your web series? But, you know, not necessarily that your story completely 
applies that, but you've been around the business long enough that oh, you, yeah. you, I think you can help us sort of guide us to this journey based off your own, your own story. Um, and though, so for the audience that, you know, listening in, we originally met, um, two years ago, actually now, about, yeah, well, about a year it? ago, we, a year was, ago, a year ago, year, a little over a year. Yeah. Because the, it was at the festival. Yeah. Portland Film Festival. Portland Film Festival, which just happened, what, a few it, So the ago? recent one just happened, yeah. and the, but the one prior to that, yeah. that's when we met because I was moderating a panel. Um, with your wife, mm-hmm. um, and um, Audrey Goldfarb, yes. Crab, and she does. Uh, she's been doing a lot of local, um, you know, web series type of things. She's great. I really need to reconnect with her. I saw her at that event. The event we, we went yeah, to. Yeah, I yeah. said hi for like a few minutes, yeah. but then, uh, you know, anyway, because she's interesting. She's a good local personality. Yeah. Obviously, also hustles her way to finding a way to get paid for her work, which is I have so much respect for anybody who can do that. That's it. You know, I, I, my, my, my good friend, Alex Ferrari, runs a uh, podcast and a website called Indie Film Hustle, and uh-huh. he's down in L.A., and it's, he, he's, he's, he definitely hustles. And yeah. it's one of those things, like, that aspect of hustle is, is so, so important. Well, I mean, I've worked since I was 15. Like, I had my <laughs> first job as a dishwasher, and honestly, like, uh, throughout my whole career, like, work is what I do. Like, and the fact that now I can get paid for doing creative work of my own um, it's interesting how it, I didn't realize it at the time, but so much of what I got paid to do is to do creative work for other people. Mm-hmm. It was take their ideas and make it into something. And, and and once you finally cross over that line of getting paid for your own creative stuff, it's very liberating, but it's also um, it's a lot riskier. The money's a lot less upfront. Um, it's really investing in yourself, and it you know you do a lot of trade offs. And that's one of the things I try to always um, be realistic with people because you know do you know how many times I tell people I'm like. They're like, what do you do? Oh, I have a food and travel show with my wife. And they're like, oh, my God, that's my dream job. And it's like, <laughs> man, like, I would love for you to live the reality for just like two weeks. Just do like one sh- one episode and see what it takes to get that done. Not only from my wife's position, who she's she's a creator of it, um, but also just from like a one-man band perspective. Um, you know, it's not glamorous, really. I mean, granted, it's – I tell people uh, – you know, we're not rich people, but we live wealthy lives, mm-hmm. and that's essentially what we do. But um, there's a lot of trade-offs. Uh, but how we got here is fascinating because uh, when I was 26 and 27, my, I met my wife, and we started our own uh, production company in New York City. And at the time, this is before branded content was really like a coined term. Right. So we were essentially doing branded content online for, you know, Fortune 500 companies, uh, you know, doing web series. Um so before this was even considered a thing, I mean, we got started working for the NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council uh, in New York City, which is an environmental group, because my wife worked there full time and she kind of hired me as a consultant. And we would travel around the country going to music festivals, talking to like A-list music celebrities to do these short little video, you know, video clips to put online on like MySpace and such um, to promote, you know, environmentalism back before when uh, George W. Bush was in office and people cared about the environment before the economy tanked. Um, but it was amazing. It was it allowed us to just like experiment and play online. And I saw, you know, my first like aha moment in that situation was when um, uh, we, you know, we, we they wanted us to promote like uh, how to green your office. You know, how do you, oh, like, okay. you know, practices, things that and it made a lot of sense if you think about how you know so much waste is generated by companies. It's not mm-hmm. individuals; it's the com- organizations themselves. They don't have good policy in place. Very boring stuff. Like really, think about these scientists and lawyers trying to come up with a way to convince people to do this. So, if, and my wife's job was to talk to kids, like to try to like get a younger generation into this stuff. 
So I had the idea at the time to do a zombie video because this was pre-Walking Dead yeah, yeah, series yeah. and all. And But I was obsessed with zombies, and I just kind of <laughs> wanted an excuse to do a zombie uh, short film. So we did this thing called like Bob the Office Zombie. It was called Use Your Brain. And the idea is that his coworkers are so much more disgusted by his bad office habits than the fact that he's a rotting corpse. <laughs> and at the time, I had a lot of like indie actor friends in New York City, like improv actors. And I had like a makeup artist that I knew. And so we did this short little video series about Bob the Office Zombie and, you know, put it up a uh, partnership with MySpace where they put us on the homepage. Um, uh, there's this musician, KT Tunstall, who I don't really know her, but hmm. she was like semi-popular at the time and she donated a, a signed guitar. So we had like a whole promotional aspect. And I remember the first day we released that on MySpace, it got 2 million views. Wow. And up until this point in my career, you know, the short films I'd done that had won <laughs> awards and made, made it through the festival circuits, you know, maybe 50 people in a room at a time would see that film. Yeah, and maybe yeah. at the end of the day, like if a thousand people saw it, I'd be like super impressed. Yeah. And now all of a sudden in one day, we spent $3,000 on three short film videos, maybe like three, five minutes each. And it got like 2 million views in a day. And that like blew my mind. And I thought about the power of that. And then, so I was kind of hooked on, um, you know, as web is a, a place to really not only play with storylines yeah. and, and different types of storytelling, but you have access to an audience that is like unprecedented. So your paradigm sort of shifted, I'm oh assuming, God, yeah. in a sense that, because um, I'm just finishing up the book by Stephen Covey, mm -hmm. uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People or something, and, then, and he talks about this paradigm shift. So for that, it's just like, you know, almost like you got like a taste. It's like a nice little oh my taste. God, like, yeah. I, I, need an, I need another hit of that. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. It was also just the idea that, the, you know, nobody was really understood the web. We still don't. Um, and, you know, as a, I'm obsessed with storytelling and storylines, and I don't honestly care about the medium. Like, I love it all. And I just saw a new opportunity to do different types of storytelling. So, like, these, you know, little short films, which I've always been a fan of, all of a sudden there was a huge place for that. Mm -hmm. This, like, short attention span isn't a bad thing when you think of it that way. And so I kept... It's funny, I kept trying to, uh, like, being a little ahead of the curve, which is a terrible place to be to make money. Um, <laughs> you want to be where the market is right when it hits. Not yeah. a, You know, the first person to do it and, you know, is pretty much like you're a sacrificial lamb for the right. people coming behind you. But um, I actually had, after seeing the success of that, I thought, you know, using this, you know, longer form online, but then doing it in episodic, like 3X structure. So say you do, like, a... Um, uh, 13-minute episodes, and you do 10 of them, that's 130 minutes, that's a feature film length worth of entertainment. And if you could do a 3X structure within each of those 13 minutes, I'm like, that is a brand new form of storytelling. It could be extremely interesting. And you can link them all together and actually maybe present them as a feature. I had all these like crazy ideas, and I pitched that to, um, uh, what is it, in the... Indie Film TV Network, what is it? Uh, IFC? IFC. Yeah. So I, I pitched it to them at the time, and they were like, well, we're a cable channel, so this idea you have is great and all, but like it's useless for us. Mm -hmm. Because they're like, we make our money on advertising. And this is where I, sh you know, eventually we figured this out, which yeah. is why we created our own content and tried to get paid for it. Um, but that's the idea, is you have this old structure, this media structure, that is essentially funded through advertising, right? And... Um, so unless you can tap into that, right? Like, so all these cable channels, they, they really are just, the people who, who are paying their checks are the, the companies who advertise with them. Yeah. And that's I mean, something that as a, in a filmmaker, you tend to not, you think of the creation, you don't think of like the <laughs> making money off it. And that's like the work, that's, a, a, that's doing it backwards, really. Yeah, you're right. Because the, the old school, uh, old Boys Network, which still exists today to some form, is the, um, you know, broadcast and cable is like, are, we have to we sell ads. Yeah, you know. So does your content help 
you know, sell sell ads, these ads exactly. You know, without controversy. Yeah. You know. <laughs> I mean, it's and there's some things that are great that this is changing, and there's you know, but we're in a weird spot right now. And um, so what happened with our journey is so we had this company doing branded content. Um, one of our biggest clients was Disney, and because we came from the environmental world. Um, in fact, a lot of the work we did, we kind of always had a mission with our company that we wanted to do. I would call it, what was this? How did I phrase it on the website? It was like uh, that add value to the world, projects that add value to the mm -hmm. world. And I don't mean like monetary value. We meant like actually doing something that you could feel proud about and that was changing the world in, in a positive direction. And at the time, we could make a lot of money doing that because we teamed up with some really big like Fortune 500 companies who were paying us to make content for them. And uh, we had this series called Disney's Planet Challenge, which is, uh, I'm sorry, the series itself was called Imagine Your Planet, which is what my wife came up with. Um, and so Disney had this uh, environmental education program in schools where they had a competition where uh, a, a class would identify an environmental issue in their um, community, propose a solution, and then, like, and then implement it using science, English, math, you know, multidisciplinary. If you think about it, these are like elementary, middle school kids doing this, mm -hmm. it's incredibly empowering. And um, and then the winner of this competition would get a free trip to Disneyland, and they would like have a whole media blitz about it. And so we would we filmed this as like a web series because Disney didn't really have any idea of how to promote or talk about this. Right. And I'll tell you the reason why they greenlit it is because we had a, a passionate advocate working inside the company who saw the opportunity, and then um, who also was um. She, she needed to sell it as much to her internally as she did to, to sell it to the outside world. So in so many ways, especially in a corporate situation, you know, they need communication internally. Like, how do you convince your higher up and your bosses that this is a good idea? Well, create a whole marketing campaign that's not only facing outwards, but also facing inwards. So then they can like get enthusiasm and communicate why it's so cool. So we were like in the right place at the right time. And we were such a small shop. We were able to like for so under, you know, if they had, to, if they tried to produce the same content internally, they would have spent, you know, millions and millions of dollars. Yeah. And instead they hire these outside vendors like us to come in, you know, just, we were like maybe a team of five or six people, depending on, you know, the month. And we would just be able to create these, you know, kick out these really like uh, slick, short, you know, web series content that, you know, there was... The fact that we had no oversight, it was really just us and one person in Disney, we made such good content. And the big shame of it is that was a really successful program. Like the the amount of like participants kept growing year after year and um I'm and a lot of it I'd like to think is part of our marketing of getting it out there and getting schools involved and teaming up with local groups. Uh and the funny thing is that program got canceled not because we didn't do a good job, but because uh there was a turnover of um of personnel on the top, you know, of the, the executive executives. Yeah. yeah. And then the, it wasn't that new executives program. So they just cut it. Yeah. They wanted to do their program, which we were talking about yeah. early because it, in the studio system that happens all the oh, time, it's, it's uh, like you might be, you know, I got a project in development with, you know, Paramount, but look at what's going on with Viacom right now yeah. and some of Redstone, you know, what's going to happen and all this upheaval. And then any past projects sometimes get, uh, you know, thrown cast aside. Actually, you know, I had interviewed, uh, Orrin Pelly who created Par paranormal activity. Yeah. And he and I worked together at Sony uh, oh, PlayStation. No yeah, so he was on my podcast, and I just rebroadcast the episode just recently. But he was talking about that because originally it was picked up by DreamWorks. Yeah. Because the famous story is that Spielberg took it home because he was the one who had to have the final approval for yeah. anything DreamWorks, and he couldn't. He got 
something happened weird in his house where the door slammed and he got too scared and he didn't finish the film. He finished the film later at the office. Yeah. So he got thumbs up. Um, but the problem was there was a, uh, DreamWorks had a distribution deal um, arrangement with Paramount yeah. and there was uh, friction and something had broken apart in terms of the relationships yeah. so so you're just thrown under the bus yeah and so yeah. you know it's one of those things like Oren was he was courted like his film the Paranormal Activity was courted for like a year and a half it wasn't like they discovered it and yeah, boom, yeah. they put it away. It was oh, that's how they like to market it. They like, like to market it, but it was like <laughs> almost a year and two years yeah, yeah. that he was in this up and down. I, I was because we were going through the emotions of it. Like yeah. what happens? You're like this thing is about to happen, and like and then and, and things are going sour at you know your current job, and like and like you're, you're one foot in to like your dreams coming true, and one foot yeah. still in your reality. Yeah, and how he had to weather that, but he but again he got. Sometimes luck plays a oh, role. Oh, luck's everything. It's because, good timing. Yeah. Is, is like it's so essential to any success. Because you were talking about an advocate. He yeah. had uh, someone from DreamWorks who then, in the merger switchover, mm-hmm. ended up at Paramount, who was there as one of the advocates. Yeah. At DreamWorks, found there was an open slate that they said, "Hey, is that paranormal activity still on the table?" Yeah. Because I need to bring something to Paramount. So yeah. it was. You, there's so many things that have to line up to have a very See, profound yeah, I, advocate. I get very frustrated for people who are like, "Oh, government sucks. It's all about private business." And people are like, "Corporations are evil." I'm like, you realize they all suffer from that same problem. <laughs> when there's bureaucracy, you know, unless you have somebody on the inside and like things are done on whims, and you know, th- there's a lot of similar issues with no, any kind of bureaucratic structure. I don't care if it's government, for profit, not for profit. School. I mean, look at I. All you're you're going to hear yeah. a lot about yeah, I have friends that are teachers yeah. and then dealing with administration I mean oh my god that's yeah but you know and as an outsider I'm a perpetual outsider in that way because I'm, <laughs> I've been a small business owner since I was like 22 years old so you know I've dealt I've worked with nonprofits I've worked with corporations I've worked with government and there's a lot of similarities um, <laughs> but uh, uh, so I'll say though that that experience when we were going through with Disney um, you know that was the last time we ever had a business built around. Uh, being a service company. And what I mean by that is what I said earlier, that we were getting paid to make content for somebody else. It wasn't our original content. We didn't own it. You know, the check cleared and they owned all the rights. And uh, which, you know, you make a lot more money, but even at the time, because of the changing of the industry, the crash happened in 2008, which essentially, you know, crushed our company. Um, But also technology was changing Mm -hmm. and suddenly budgets were changing. People, what we kept seeing was all these big, even Fortune 500 companies who have, marketing and line item budgets um, for spending on this kind of stuff they'd be like well my cousin has a video camera and he says he can edit it and he gave you know they said they could do it for 15,000 and you give us a budget of 55 we're like well because 55 is what's going to take to do it right mm-hmm. it started being where we'd get called you know months later after the fact for us to come in and clean up the project that they already screwed up because they paid somebody way too little money and then they they wouldn't even pay us our original estimate it'd be lower than our original but we'd still take the job just because we're like shoot why not yeah um and then we would have to redo the work of somebody who screwed it all up for even less money and then they'd end up spending more money than we originally budgeted on because if you add the two budgets Mm -hmm. together and that was like became our norm and we saw the writing on the wall it was like this is only going to get worse and i can guarantee you it's only gotten worse yeah um so we we were like so now what do we do and at the time so We were living in New York City, moved out to California to work with Disney, but also just for a change of lifestyle. And on the drive out from uh, New York to California, (laughs) my wife said, you know, let's take a few extra days and let's stop and do some of these like food adventure stories that my wife is. She is like a crazy foodie. She loves where food comes from. She's obsessed with all that. And um, 
So she said, let's film some stories on the drive out. And I thought that was a great idea. And part of the reason is we come from the environmental world and we had a show that we were trying to pitch to like Planet Green and that was a thing. Mm -hmm. That was all about, you know, it was, it was an environmental show. Try to get people interested in the environment. And we, and we realized early on that like nobody gives a shit. Really, like, <laughs> even if they say they give a shit, and most of the content people were creating was so, like, finger-waggy and so, like, talking down to people. And, and so the kind of aha moment she had was, like, man, if we want to get people interested in this, like, do something they can relate to. And food, essentially, is, like, across cultures. That's the one way people can really connect, like, effortlessly yeah. through food. Well, there's, three, there's three basic needs for humans. It's food, shelter, clothing, yeah. which is why the food industry will always be one of the main drivers. Fashion yeah. industry will always exist yeah. and real estate. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, I'll say that the food thing was, and it's cool though, because that was her obsession anyway. Like we would travel for, like I said, for NRDC, going to mm -hmm. music festivals and she would always find these crazy adventures to go on, you know, whether it was like go to a farm or harvest mussels or she always would have like track down the most unique, interesting, weird off the grid thing to do. And so essentially it was just recording these adventures you know as a show and so um we filmed a few of them and started editing it together and in kelly's mind i can guarantee you she and she's talked about this with me was she wanted to find a new market for us to go into because we were in the environment education market mm -hmm. and we had clients and things happening and she was like well we need to get in food and lifestyle so she was like i'll make a show so it was all this stuff it was because we wanted to do an environmental show that nobody wanted to watch and because <laughs> you know it was like how do we branch out yeah so she, we started creating this show and you know, I had all the video equipment, so we essentially started doing short video things and built a website called theoriginalfair.com and started putting up these like recipe videos and interviews. And, and it's funny because we were doing stuff that now is everywhere. Mm -hmm. And again, we were a little ahead of the market, uh, which is cool. Yeah. Uh, but then all of a sudden the market was flooded and it was like pointless. But the smartest thing we did is coming from, you know, doing content for other people is not only do we create really good quality, like professional quality content, um, Quickly, my wife was like, okay, I need to like get out there and talk about this. So she contacted all these different, um, uh, what's it? Um, uh, organizations? Not organizations, or, or but like uh, conferences. Conferences. She yeah. contacted all these conferences and she, uh, there's this big conference in Austin called, uh, f you know, Blog Her. You know, the, the, it's like essentially like female bloggers, women okay. bloggers. There's this whole organization called Blog Her and they had this big conference in Austin. And so she wrote them and sent our stuff and was like, hey, this is my content, this is what I do. And sh so they put her on a panel on food and video. And so she was talking about like how to create compelling content in the food and video world. And um, in the audience was PBS because <laughs> they were just starting up their um, uh, PBS food because they, uh, they needed to be a player in that scene as well. And um, they saw what she was doing and how she spoke about it. They were like, oh my God, this is exactly the kind of material we're looking for. So that essentially gave us our audience without having to build it from scratch and so because there's a few ways to make money right, right, this is right, where it gets right. to what the audience should be interested in listening to uh to make money you need to sell to somebody nothing changes mm -hmm. like even though it's not the big networks still who's going to pay for this and so pbs they're you know is somewhat publicly funded but they also you know uh but they you know they have a huge distribution network so if you're going to show on pbs they don't really pay much for content they'll pay a little bit to develop stuff and they'll license things and they pay us like a nice little you know, licensing fee per season for the stuff we create, but it's not enough to make the show. What we end up having to do is get sponsorship. And because uh, somebody's going to pay for this at some point, right? Um, and when we were starting out, you know, we could plug into their audience, which is an audience of, you know, millions of people that watch it. And we have all those metrics they send to us that we can then use in a deck to sell to give to sponsors. So 
our episodes are essentially sponsored by people. But here's the catch. If you want to work in food and make money, um, you know, just do what everybody else is doing, first of all. And, that, <laughs> and that's one way to do it. Um, but it, like who who has all the money in food in this country? It's owned by the same like four companies. You know? oh, yeah. There's like her, uh, Nestle. There's um, uh, what is it? Uh, who are the other ones? Like Kellogg, like all these. Yeah, ones. I was wondering if Kellogg was one of them. But he, I think they're actually owned by somebody else. Yeah, like, so it essentially <laughs> is only like a few companies um, that have all the money. PepsiCo and um, and the stories we were telling are essentially people who are doing stuff like really interesting, innovative. They're you know they're hunting, fishing, foraging. They're doing like you know organic farming. So in other words, people who have no money. Mm-hmm. And so like how we got money for the show itself is we went to tourism boards because we'd be like promoting actual people who live and sell products that are made in that area. Mm-hmm. We would, um, we, we sell to, um, uh, you know, there's like food boards, cheese boards, wine boards, you know, there's actually organizations that exist that are doing good work. And the idea is we were highlighting and promoting people who would have no marketing budget. Um, and no, um, uh, what's it called? Uh, you know, they have no marketing budget, no budget for PR. They could never afford a 30-second commercial, let alone um, a, a TV show to come and film with them. So in a way, we're doing like we're having the conversation about food in this country in a way that nobody else is going to do right. Because typically, uh, the show itself is about transparency. Mm-hmm. So if we're going to connect our audience with where their food comes from, which is the name of the show, the original fare is the show. And the idea is like connecting your audience directly with the people who produce and make their food. And we were less concerned about that final finished dish, like the celebrity chef, like, look at this pretty food porn. It was like, really, where does this stuff come from? Yeah, yeah. And and for my wife and me, that was way more compelling of a story anyway. But the economics of it are difficult because for us, to, it's all about transparency. And I can guarantee you, uh, the few episodes we've done on bigger food production, industrialized food production, they do not want us there. In fact, my wife's now kind of blacklisted from working with a lot of meat, meat producers because they don't. They, their whole fight has been hiding what's actually going on. The mm-hmm. more they can show you just the pretty farm with grass growing on it and cows eating it, you know, they usually have one or two producers that they'll work with that are the face of it, and then the rest of it's just all factory farming. Yeah. Um, so that sense of transparency, we work with smaller producers who are totally into it because that's the only thing they have to show. Like that's that's their value that they can be able to communicate that um and but they don't have any money so it's like you get into this weird position where as a and for us integrity is essential like the reason why people watch our show and trust it is because we're very transparent about what we're showing and who and you know the people we take money from they don't have any creative control like they're essentially like trusting us to tell a story that that we find interesting right um that's an amazing place and neither does pbs though so we're essentially but you know there's there's a uh, you know, it's a great place to be. In fact, like the reason why we, str- you know, we make money but struggle is because we're unwilling to take the big payout. Because what you lose when you take that big payout from a major company, like we used to do with like uh, some of the big fi- Fortune 500 companies, is you're essentially giving up your voice. You're, you know, or you're shifting your voice, editing it a little bit to make your sponsor happy. The service and, company. You're, yeah, your service as opposed company. to a content yeah. creation company. And so we live in this weird, weird, you know world where we you know we create exactly the show we want to make the only thing we're somewhat handicapped by is that the money's limited for now um but you know we also then get to use pbs's distribution who and i can guarantee you the reason why we've been really proud of our show and um it it continues to just grow and 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 you know change and get bigger is because 
our audience is actually very interested in the subject matter. They're educated about it and they want to learn more. So like it was just really great. I mean, we're so lucky that PBS saw something in us early on because it allowed us to then, you know, push storytelling. I mean, we started out doing, you know, three to five minute. Well, th yeah, three to five minute episodes. And then it was like a second season. PBS was like, could you guys do like six minutes? Because they're like, that's like the longest we want it to be. Um, because online, that's what works best, whatever. We all, we all honestly saw the limitations of that, but we're like, okay, so what if we do three uh, six-minute episodes? That's 18 minutes. So we would take a subject like Goat Cheeses of France, and we would do approach the topic from three different angles, and essentially that's 18 minutes. That's almost okay. a half-hour runtime. Yeah, yeah. And th so that's, that's how we kind of got around the restrictions, like using the limitations to our advantage. Um, you know, and that for as a content creator, that was a lot more fun for me than just doing the same format over and over and over again. And the show kind of has grown and changed in that regard, too, is, you know, we don't have anybody looking over our shoulder. So we kind of do whatever we want anyway. Right. Um, and it's allowed us to play within the formats, which I think is one of the strengths of online. But what happened, which was super interesting, is that people started watching more and more content through their TV. And that is that is where our audience lives. Huh. Every time I talk to people, they're like, um, well, oh, you're on PBS. I'm sorry, I just don't own a TV. And we're like, well, good, because that's who our audience is. It's people who use Apple TV, Roku, Amazon. You can like use the you know the Fire Stick, whatever. Um, you know, our show's shot on HD, right? It's like you know pr uh, TV quality production. Uh, in fact, in our storytelling is becoming more and more of this half hour format anyway. Um, and it turns out people would binge watch our whole show. They'd put on an episode and just kind of watch it through. And uh, you know, and and. It's interesting that the t as the technology was changing, our kind of um, storytelling was changing to fit it better. Mm -hmm. Not completely in on purpose, but uh, so that was like, I think really has informed and shaped how we've approached it. And um, granted, the whole reason this thing happens is because my wife knows how to kind of get money from companies, sponsorships. She's not how to literally lock down sponsorship money for episodes and deliver on that. And it really comes down to audience. Because we can use PBS's audience to sell against, and um, if if you know anybody who wants to start out and do a show, um, the investment to build an audience is huge. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so much time, effort. It doesn't have to be a lot of out-of-pocket money because you can build all that audience online, right? Yeah. And you can tap into existing communities, but the amount of time and energy and effort it takes to do that is like incredible. And that thing about it, as a content creator, not only do you have to think of really compelling content, you have to understand how to market it, how to get it out there, how to consistently be pushing out content to, to build an audience. And that's very difficult. And, but once you have that audience, then you have eyeballs to sell to. And that's all people, that's all people care about when it comes to their products. I think it's very interesting because the, um, what you're talking about is the audience that you guys have partnered up with, yeah. which is this is we'll get into this in a second but i know that i, I didn't want to diverge because i know there's a bit of a story there it's important because you guys are leaving new york to go to los angeles yeah um to work with disney because you had this one disney contract yeah. which is uh you know part of your service agreement and you know as a as a service company yeah but just because the need to just create something on your road trip you, you, you the first kernels of original fare are born yeah but what happened when you got to like Los Angeles. Oh yeah. So what happened was Disney is there was a change of, changing of the guards at Disney and and that you know that project or sorry that uh, was it what would you call it that um contract 
Well, the contract itself essentially got well, the executives. The, the executives changed. switched over and they canceled the whole division. Like it was gone. Like these these people, everybody we were working with, yeah. they got folded into another division. So everything they were working on was just cut. And so, so like any, this great program. Right. So then we were essentially just signed a year lease uh, for an expensive apartment and then had to figure it out. Which you know this wasn't the first time we've ran into like a roadblock in our careers. And you know it was it was a bummer. Like it sucks when you're faced with like you know poverty like staring you full in the face um but at the same time like you know we were really motivated to do our own thing and, and both my wife and i were really getting fatigued of being a service company because mm -hmm. you know we had done so much good work over the years and all it takes as we said earlier is one ad you'll have a company you do great work with because you have this one advocate and then they even they leave and you're essentially thrown to the wolves or it's just it's arbitrary what happens to you afterwards mm -hmm. and as an outside vendor that's always a concern and uh and we really wanted to kind of own our own destiny. Right. And that was, you know, that's when we started putting more and more effort and attention into Original Fair. And it became like it was only one of a few projects. Then it dominated our attention just because it took so much to get it done and because we loved it so much. But at the same time, so there's the Original Fair, which is our web series that with PBS that is, you know, keeps just growing in success, which is amazing. But then there's a... We also, at the same time, because we were in the education sector and also technology sector, um, I did a, a little bit of work for the National Academy of Engineering, who I'm a huge fan of, by the way. Hmm. Uh, I'm, the, I'm the science and tech nerd. My wife's the food nerd. And um, so we kind of floated in those, in those sectors for a while. Uh, but anyway, we were in the education and science sector, uh, partly because of Disney, partly because of the Academy of Engineering. And over and over again, we kept hearing, going to conferences, trying to drum up business, Oh, we need more diversity in the tech world. We need more women in the tech world. And um, so my wife was like, okay, light bulb went off. You know what? There's money. Like, you talk about Google, Microsoft, you know, Intel. Like, there's money in the tech world. They all want to, like, they're talking about diversity. They want to do something about it. But, you know, they honestly, they're, we're the outside creators, right? They're limited in what they're able to do. And, uh, and I can guarantee you over and over again, it was a, like an, a senior male executive, you know, white male executive talking about how they need diversity in the tech world. <laughs> and I, God bless them. The, like they identified that there was an issue and I, and, but we knew they were going to spend money on it. So my wife was like, you know what, we should do a web series that, you know, they're saying they want to reach young women of color. Like, why don't we get girls around their age who are actually succeeding in this field and be role models and they can be like examples and treat them like rock stars. Her whole image was let's treat um, these girls who are kicking ass in computing and technology as if they were rock stars or sports athletes. Like that's how we'll approach it. And, um, and let's hear in their own words, not like some 50 year old marketing exec, like let's hear in their own words, you know, why this is awesome, right? And um, so she pitched that to a lot of people. We had the White House meetings with the White House. We had Girl Scouts. We had like everybody, and everybody was like, "This is such a good idea." But here's the lesson I've learned over <laughs> and over again in my career: everybody will love your idea, they'll exploit your idea, but they won't give you a freaking dollar for your idea. So we, we were having all these great meetings. We had all these people on board, but nobody would essentially put a single dollar into it. And um, and we were getting a little frustrated. So like three years on and off of pitching this project while the Disney thing's happening, while original fair's happening. And finally, um, my wife did essentially a Hail Mary pass, and she cyber-stalked uh, this woman, Rain Johnson Stempson, who works with Microsoft's diversity division. So not Microsoft marketing, not, and not people with huge budgets. Mm -hmm. She went to one of their small um, you know, initiatives inside the company, 
uh, I think it's uh, research. It's the research division, and she was kind of heading the diversity. And she sent her an email through LinkedIn and was just like, hey, this is a project I'm developing. I'd love, you know, I'd love to work on it. Uh, I'm, I'm looking for partners. And Rain, again, I said, you need one advocate. Yeah. Rain was our advocate, and she literally went to the mat over and over again for this project because she saw the potential, and she said, okay, we're trying to reach these girls. She's going. She herself is going to conferences, talking, building this network up. Um, and she saw, like well, I read on your website about thinking of film as a marketing tool. Yeah. What are you selling with your film? Because you're not selling the film itself. It's not right. just entertainment. What is it selling on top of that? And Rain saw that. We just wanted to do a web series. That was our original pitch. <laughs> That's the world we lived in. Uh, and then Rain, I give her so much credit. She was like, instead of doing a web series, what about a feature documentary? And we were like, uh, yeah, yeah, if you want to pay us like $350,000. And she was like, well, I'll give you like a tenth of that. Uh, but no, anyway, the, in fact, the budget, you know, it was a tiny budget. Um, and we, we squeezed a little bit more out of them. But um, it was never enough to really make the film, let's yeah. be honest. Uh, but... Kelly and I had to sit down and be like, okay, we have original fair going on and we were already traveling around the world filming for it. Um, and, and now we have this opportunity to do this thing with Microsoft. And the caveat is they wouldn't pay us a lot of money, but we don't all the rights. So hmm. they would kick in some investment and then we would have to, and, and we, we sat down and we we're like, let's be honest. If we say no, right, we can say no, it's not going to be a lot of money. We might lose money. Um, but if we say no, this opportunity is going away. And this whole thing we've developed for years and put our hearts into we're just going to have to kiss it goodbye. And we thought, all right, it's already just the two of us going around filming for Original Fair. What if we doubled up production? So we go to Kenya and we film for, you know, we, f we film this amazing woman, Martha, who started a hacker school in Kenya because she got denied visa to the U.S. And we we're like, we can film with her and then we'll film an episode of Original Fair. Right. The flights are covered. The costs are covered. So essentially two people filmed like 30 episodes of a web series and an entire feature documentary and edited all that stuff together within a year. And if you asked me at the beginning of the year, like, do you think you could get all this work done? I'd be like, you're insane. Like, nobody can do that. That's physically impossible. And uh, and again, give, give my wife a lot of credit. She was crazy enough to think it could be done. And then we did it. And uh, and part of it was because we had super hard deadlines. We were like, we there was not enough money for that doc to, you know, to pay to pay for the documentary, let alone our rent, beyond like a few months. So we made certain we're like. We get five days with each girl. So we pro originally it was supposed to be three girls domestically. Mm -hmm. And then uh, because we were partnering with the UN, with Girl Scouts, National Girls Collaborative Project, they were like, you need to have somebody in, you know, in South America. You need somebody in from the Middle East. You need and, and, you know, and we kept pushing back saying, well, then we need more money. But at the end of the day, we also were like, God, it's a much better story. And it gave us access to then film for Original Fair 2. So, you know, we embraced the chaos and the starvation. Um, and essentially just like dove in head first. Uh, but we own the rights. So like to this day, like Microsoft, God, the value they got out of that film, like it, I kind of kicked myself because we didn't make a lot of money off of it. But at the same time, like, you know, the fact that, so after that film was all said and done, we did the festival circuit. Um, my wife signed up for the American Film Showcase. She applied for that, which is, I don't know if you've heard of that, but it's a, um, it's essentially a, um, with the State Department and embassies around the world, they sh they choose like 20 American films a year and they show that, you know, to tiny communities around the world and essentially is promoting American storytelling. It's, I think, honestly, one of the best programs for America because instead of seeing just the Hollywood stuff, yeah. they get like a range of actual storytelling from real Americans and it's superb. And the kind of cultural exchange you get, you cannot buy that. 
In fact, that's what, you know, and I can guarantee you with the new administration in, that's the kind of shit they're going to cut is the <laughs> stuff that actually is promoting America in a good way. But that being said, um, so my wife is, was in Algeria. She was in Zambia in these tiny little villages showing our film of like young women of color in computer science. Like that kind of like, you know, some of these women, they'll be like, you know what? I want to do this. Like, of course, they'll say these are the struggles. But wow, I can now see a woman like me who wears a shawl, who, you know, who's like from Kenya who's achieving great things and like the, the amount of um you know and, and it's an american made film like think about that that's pretty awesome um so the, the, the amount of value and change we've added to the world like I, I i'm so proud of that that's like seriously even though we didn't make a lot of money off of it i'm so proud of what we were able to bring like hundreds of thousands of young women around the world have seen this movie mm -hmm. and that's like one of the best things i've ever done but how i made money off that movie is through educational distribution yeah and that's something that I, if I'd known at the beginning, I mean, we, we still might sign a deal with Amazon for streaming and we can make some money off that. And we might do that. But um, up to this point, like I never even heard of educational distribution. And I'm so mad about that because this film is perfect for it. Because the truth is there's an audience for it, but it's mostly like educators, right? And it's like people who want to, who are, have programs of like minority girls, they're trying to like get into computer science and they want to show them a film or a science class, or a computer science class. Like, it turns out there's a, a patchwork of these, um, you know, th that schools and communities that need, you know, content to show. And, uh, and if you do educational di distribution, like, you don't have to give up um, international rights. You don't have to get, there's so many things that uh, are protected, and you can still make money off your film. Did you talk to, at the event where we were at uh, for the Northwest Film Center, um Paula Bernstein introduced me to Jonathan. John, I don't have, I don't have his card in front of me, so yeah. I don't his last name, but he works with Canopy. He used to work with Fandor. So he's down in San Francisco right now, and Canopy, starts with a K, yeah. uh, deals with the uh, distribution of uh, film content uh, to uh, universities or education. Yeah, so, That's, yeah, yeah. it's very similar. I, I, we signed with Collectivee, okay. who've been great. I mean, essentially, I don't know how much marketing for us they've done, but they didn't really need to because we already had... So the mistake I made, though, is... Before I knew what educational distribution was, the reason why Microsoft, or I should say Rain Johnson, because she's the one who kind of masterminded this all, the reason why she, you know, just gave us the money like hands free is because she made us agree to do like a year's worth of free screenings, educational screenings, mm -hmm. which I thought was cool because it was essentially the whole idea why we made the film. I, my wife and I were so sick of going to see documentaries that make you feel guilty or terrible. They tell you that this huge issue, and then all it is is a stupid little website at the end, or like tweet this out, and you'll solve the world's problems. And it just—it was really frustrating to me that knowing film is a marketing tool, right? Right. Like that, nobody ever really thought through the um, the second impact part. Like, so okay, you want to make change, you watch, you get motivated by watching. So. We, well, the reason we agreed to Rain to do this as a documentary instead of a web series is we were like, all right, as long as you have these on-the-ground programs that we can direct these girls to. And they already had that all set up. Like, mm. because of all the work she had done with all these different organizations, there was the, you know, they had a website built that Microsoft had already built where you can type in your zip code and they'll tell you computer science mentorships, classes, like, in your area. So they'd already built that infrastructure. They needed something to market it. And, that's, and they weren't going to get the support in yeah. in in house. No, do you think they were going to get in house to make them a documentary? Right. Like, so they needed outside vendors like me and my wife Kelly. But at the same time, like, there's no way we're just going to get. Like, listen, if you're going to pay us to do a feature documentary, like, we're talking millions of dollars. Like, you got to actually pay us for that. But because they didn't have that full money, we keep the rights. 
And, you know, and we still have the potential to exploit that over and over again. And that's how right. we ended up making money, educational distribution. Granted, if we got could have gotten paid for that year's worth of screenings, man, we would have made a good penny on that. But at the same time, that was the deal we signed. Yeah. So if I'd been smarter about it, I, and this is what I'd caution people, like, you know, hanging on to the rights is good, but kind of understand what you're getting into. Um, but at the same time, you know, the, the amount of people that actually saw that film promoted it then did have access to, you know, resources on the ground. That's insane. Like, we achieved the metric we sent out to do, which is the whole point of making that film was to get girls to see the movie. We wanted to make some money off it, which we have. You know, we paid rent. Um, and it's funny, I talked to other documentary filmmakers and the reality is you rarely make money. So yeah. the fact that we actually made some money off this film is like incredible for, you know, I do see the potential where we could have made even more, but it's like, that's in some ways getting a little greedy. Really? Like, yeah, that was my first time through on a feature film. Like, God, the lessons I learned are invaluable. And that's again, when I talk to people who have had successful documentaries, they're like, man, that's why you got to keep making stuff. Like, and, and the reality on the ground keeps changing anyway. Um, you know, now that there is like Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, uh, we own those rights. So now, you know, the, the funny thing is we almost sold to Netflix, except because we had like a connection to them. And they were like, how are you coming to us with just this film? Like, you should go to an aggregate. They'll buy it. And then we'll buy like a slate of films. Like mm -hmm. they rarely just buy a film. But we almost made it. Like we got really close to them, like accepting until they realized, like, how are you talking to us? Like, yeah. like how'd you? Yeah, yeah they're because... like, and, and nothing to do with the quality of the film or anything. Because right. the truth is, they don't really care about that. No, it's all a metric. It's all a thing, a thing they program in. And they were like, they're not going to waste creating a, a deal for like a small little indie documentary. Yeah, they. Pr I can guarantee you, they have their. I haven't gone through it with them, but they probably have a whole, you know. Uh, thing there's lawyers created up that they give to these big aggregate companies and they buy a slate of films and this that's just how they do business yeah. but again like i didn't know that <laughs> yeah um but now i know better and truthfully like i'm really eager to start my next project which i'm developing a few things with the knowledge that i gained these last few years from a tv show that we kind of bootstrapped to a documentary we bootstrapped i mean yeah it's an incredible world right now and essentially you you know you the bar is so low for anybody to hurdle over um, but then there's also the caveat to that, which I would love to talk about the whole Kickstarter thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I've never really experimented with Kickstarter. I started up a, a one recently for a new project, but I don't really, you know, I'm, I'm very wary of the whole, um, crowdfunding thing because as I see it from my perspective, it is made it so that research and development, which typically used to be done by major studios, everybody, you know, they used to have to pay a lot of money to be constantly developing new projects. Um, that is now outsourced to everybody's uncles and aunts and you know people with the least amount of money and very little experience on investing in entertainment uh they're the ones who are shouldering now all this research and development <laughs> and i think that's disgusting in some ways that i mean it's cool because so many projects especially you talk about diversity of voice you have yeah. people who never would get a chance to make a film they're making a film now and their voices are getting out there but the dark side of that is um the studios don't have to invest they can pick winners after they've already won so yeah. you do a Kickstarter, it gets all this, you know, gets a little bit of funding, it gets an audience, you work your butt off to get it out there, and then they can just come in and buy the rights to it. So they don't have to invest in anything except for sh almost sure winners. It's To me, it's really kind of like, it's a sad new reality. And because there's such a glut of content now, everybody's getting their Kickstarter funded. So all of a sudden, you're instead of there being five films on arcades, there's like, 20 right like all of a sudden there's a the if you think about supply and demand there's an, a glut of supply and this is probably going to be the new reality yeah so then the value of your your, your content has now just shrunk even more 
And how do you stand out? It's like it's created all these new problems that I think it's, you know, it's not good or bad. It's just is, right? And I get frustrated, when, though, when people try to romanticize it. It's like Uber, right? They're like, oh, we're changing the world for better. It's like, <laughs> well, you're also putting a lot of people out of business. And, yeah. you know, not to say that that's it's, – it's, listen, I'm a huge capitalist. I'm a, I'm a fan <laughs> of um, – I'm an entrepreneur. But at the same time, I, I just get really frustrated at how people frame these narratives uh, as if this is all like a good thing. And in reality, it's, it's destabilizing a lot of the industry, and it's really making it harder for the little guy in the long run in some ways. Yeah, it's um... – there's a lot there that we can unpack, yeah. you know, so, <laughs> but if I, I'll back up a little bit, I think yeah. with your, you were hitting upon, which is like them on controlling the license, owning the license. Yeah. And, you know, um, and those who've been listening to me for a while and are read the book, um, out there, how to make and sell your film online. There's, um, there's a book by, um, Shuler M. Moore, which is an entertainment lawyer. And he's a, one of the big prominent ones, but he's just like, I don't know, fourth edition of his book called the biz. It's really boring. I mean, but it's but it's like, but if if you're really interested in this type of stuff, because he's coming from a lawyer standpoint, he goes into like tax write-offs, tax incentives, understanding like the the tax codes for entertainment. But his the biggest takeaway, which is that the film industry revolves around exploitation of the license. Yeah. So once you put your head around that, then whoever controls the license, as you mentioned earlier, yeah, has the have the ability and control to exploit it. Yeah. So which is key. Yep. And not only that, but the other experts will say, um, you know, it's interesting because the, the audience that you've tapped into and the organizations you're going to to make, you know, this su successful, I hope people listening understand, like, nowhere in there is it that you're trying to advertise other filmmakers. No, no. God, no. So, yeah. So, that, so that's the big takeaway because you'll see a lot of, like, um, you know, there's – like film publications, Filmmaker Magazine, Movie Maker Magazine, IndieWire, whatnot, uh, mm -hmm. No Film School, or somebody's just saying, here's the latest, you know, web series. But you're you're advertising web series to other filmmakers. And yeah, that's a small market. I mean, there's, I'm sure it's a growing market in some ways because of how everybody can now make films. But um, no, I mean, it, it's interesting. I, I like that you said that. And it's something that I never even thought of. Recently, I've actually been <laughs> trying to connect with the film community. It's one of the reasons we moved to Portland, first of all, it's a good, there's a good scene going on here. And I don't just mean, I mean, multiple scenes are happening at once. We came up here because we had a food and travel show and we were living in Southern California. And, you know, listen, LA might have a scene. I don't know. We were living in Laguna Beach and I'll tell you, like, it was a food desert. <laughs> I mean, for good food. And, you know, we were literally hunting, fishing, foraging, farming, getting access to fresh ingredients uh, and with chefs who like, that's what they're obsessed with. And then uh, we kept repeatedly coming up to Oregon to film. And not even just Portland, but Oregon in general, because there was such a movement up here for, you know, growing your own food for, mm -hmm. you know, and there's a culture of hunting and fishing that's just part of the Pacific Northwest. And we fell in love with it. I mean, I'm a New Yorker. I'm from the East Coast. I'm like a, a liberal East Coast Jew. And I'll tell you that the but living in Southern California, like it just didn't. It's weird. Like it, I just didn't feel like I was fitting in because I really want I'd much rather be out in the forest. Right. And like and and so anyway, we kept coming up here to film these um, episodes for the show and we kind of fell in love with the Pacific Northwest um, and then you know the truth is like this is you know if you want to get stuff funded and made like for my wife she needed to be around this culture these are the people that are going to you know pay money and in a way this is our audience mm -hmm. and it's also people who have companies that are going to pay money to, you know to sponsor episodes so it just made sense for her and for our lifestyle to be up here um, and also we thought you know what if we can just you know 
drive an hour to film, like instead of getting on a plane and flying for, you know, half a day, like that's just a good resource for us. Um, but what I didn't expect was how amazing the indie film community is here. It's small, but like uh, L.A. was just so amorphous and everybody's <laughs> so full of shit. No, no offense. I mean, I yeah. love L.A. For, in some ways. But like how many meetings that I have where nobody wants to say no to you? Mm -hmm. they'll just string you along and nothing ever gets done and it was just very frustrating from my perspective being an indie producer I just make stuff and I'll, we'll find ways to make it and get it done so I came up to Portland and I started feeling this whole culture of um, collaboration instead of competition mm -hmm. people just help each other out and like coming from Brooklyn you know working in Brooklyn and having companies there everybody you know we, of course we were young but there's you know there's a lot of competition but honestly like once you got into the scene everybody you you know you'd show up and do a free day on set for a friend you'd lend your gear then they'd lend it back to you know something else back to you on the next and i kind of missed that camaraderie and i just was never able to, able to rebuild that in los angeles i'm sure it exists yeah i couldn't find it for myself granted i didn't fully live in la so i'm kind of like yeah you know i don't know if the, that's the reality of it but for me it was and then as soon as i came up to portland and i didn't even intend to i just started you know interacting with more of the film community and I was like, God, these are my people. Like, they have, we kind of have the same goal in mind. Uh, I, like, the first few months I was here, I made friends with some photographers and videographers. They were, like, lending me really expensive lenses, you know, just because I asked for no, like, no, you know, no money. And then all I had to do was, you know, return the favor. And I was like, God, this is exactly the, you know, the culture I came <laughs> from. Um, and I love that. And, and honestly, there's a sense of just Portland has a sense of bootstrapping. People are just used to figuring out and doing it on their own and like that for me has served me in my career god the uh, you know the fact that when i started out i had no money and i was I had to start at the bottom of an industry as a production assistant and so working my way up meant making more money and so i had to and i essentially tried to learn everything on my way up that would make me a better producer and director that was my motivation i need to pay rent and all these skills will make me better at my eventual goal and that was like kind of how i set my career forward um, and thank God, because when the industry now is like fragmenting, mm -hmm. you know, you want to get a project started and you want to get something done. Like if you can do it all yourself, oh my God, like you're in a much better spot than the next guy who has to hire, you know, four or five people just to get like a pilot done or a, you know, a first episode done or, you know. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's the, um, totally agreed because there was, you know, we were talking earlier, there was just this transition in the industry, you know, we had, we had lucky enough to have started with, you know, editing on the, the, the Steambacks and then, yeah. and then even the AB role video oh, style yeah. God, and then, those. I mean, all that kind of stuff. And then watching the digital, you know, evolve, Yeah. but also seeing, you know, I don't know if you can remember, but I remember some of the old guard editors, um, when this digital stuff started hitting where they were you know they weren't adapting you know and yeah. it was like they but they only knew what they knew yeah and uh, and i have friends that were just um um you know vi videographers or something but then they realized that they're going to these client sessions and they're wanting they them to do photos too so yeah you start seeing like you have to be able to take sh you know photographs as well do video yeah if you want to make money in this industry now too like really like because do you want, nobody wants to read a script anymore? Yeah, like no bullshit. Nobody wants to read a script. If you can actually show them it, like that's what people want to see. They want the more you can get a finished product in somebody's hands, and it, maybe even it's just like the first draft of it, but whatever. Like, and if you can make it visual, like that's a huge bonus. I mean, that's why we got original fare picked up is because we were already were making it like it was already being made so then PBS could license it. Yeah. We didn't wait around. We weren't like pitching that to people saying this is what we think it should be. Because no, like, yeah, nobody has any imagination, and rightly so, right? They want to see it. 
and it, you know it stinks but at the same time the overhead on all this like on all this gear has you know honestly you, the phone, most of our phones we have the video they shoot is beautiful just get some good audio and then there you go like yeah it's, to me it's almost in, in when, when all this new technology started coming out i was getting very nervous because that's how i paid the bills and i was like man is like every idiot can be able to, sh to film like and that's it like i can't get paid to do this anymore um, but one of my really good friends who I went to college with, this editor, David Tong, who lives in New York, uh, he's like, I don't know, he's like one of my best friends, uh, not only in life, but in the industry. He early on said, listen, I'm not an editor, even though that's his job. He's like, you know, <laughs> I just know how to tell a story. And I don't care what how the technology changes, that's what I do. And that's that's how he's viewed his career. He So, because I kept asking him like, oh, should I get um, Final Cut or should I do Avid? Or And he was like, it doesn't matter. He's like, it doesn't matter. You, he's like, you can learn any of those things. You'll learn those programs. You know, just sit down for a week and play around with it. He's like, learn how to tell a story. And he's not he's not wrong. And as as a video creator, as a content creator, mm -hmm. same deal. Like, I get actually very frustrated. I think people overcomplicate it. And the fact that all this stuff is accessible, there's no excuse anymore. Yeah, the playing field might be level, so how do you prove you're better? Like, show you're a better storyteller. It's not about the gimmick. It's about actually doing the job well. And, um, and you know, the, the amount of... The quality of work that my wife and I are able to create with just two people, like I've shown it to people who, are, you know, one of the other shows we love that's on PBS is um, Chef's Life. Mm -hmm. And I mean, talk about extremely talented documentary filmmakers that are making a food show similar to ours. Very different in style. But, um, you know, their, their crew is the producer, co-creator is on audio. She has two cameramen. And, um, and then they have like a team of editors. And like their show looks amazing, it's very well done. But you know, then there's just literally me and Kelly, yeah, who do everything, soup to nuts. And you know, I, when we we actually filmed with them a little bit because we were filming while they were filming, it was a kind of a fun little experiment, experimental segment we both did. Um, it was just really fascinating for me to think about, like, God, like you know, you can nitpick the quality thing there, but it's like the truth is, there's not much difference in the quality. Because the, it's HD, you know, professional camera sound. Everything looks and sound good. We color correct. We audio, you know, we do post on audio because of Adobe. Yeah. Like, that's what is accessible to you now. So you have no excuse not to make really good content. And then uh, making money off it is another story. But truthfully, if you can create good work and get it out there and, you know, find an audience, whether you build it yourselves or you, you know, sign a deal with somebody who already has an audience. They're yeah. need, and I can guarantee you, people who have audience constantly need content. So like, I don't know. There's no excuses, but granted, good luck because it's a freaking brutal. It's a brutal <laughs> industry right now, and I don't see it getting any easier in the future. Interesting that you're bringing up, um, you know, building an audience from scratch or you know finding those who have an audience. Yeah. Because the the experts in like the marketing and business and entrepreneurial field, they talk about. Um, in the book that I wrote as well, curating all this information was like you have like two two services that you need to do almost like daily it's like what have you done to serve your ideal fan mm -hmm. and that ideal fan will multiply to many people yeah and then that's the slow crawl kind of thing you know one fan at a time yeah versus then what have you done to serve your influencer so an influencer of somebody who, it, or i guess the best analogy was if you want to be the leader of a parade then you just jump in front of the parade yeah Instead of working your way in the back, trying to work your way up to the front yeah. of the parade, you know, just find who, what parade you want to be in front of. Yeah. Meaning that the audience-wise, which is, I think, is fantastic what you guys have done, and what Kelly has, you know, like said, just her, 
her chutzpah and her, her hustle of just going, I'm going after these organizations, after these organizations, these organizations, yeah. you know, have funding plus interest plus it's, I'm aligning the pieces correctly. And, um, and that's what we, like I said, we, ha- we don't see on a regular basis on the, the, the really, sp- it's hard to say what indie film is now because the, the tools are so readily available. Yeah. And we are definitely seeing like a, a shift of like, and maybe like sort of the Vimeo age where yeah. people were like, here's my test footage of my, you know, 7D or my 5D. And like, that's what people were dialing in to see. Um, and I actually, lucky enough, I interviewed Patrick Monroe of uh, Still Motion, and they came from Canada, and they moved here to Portland. And he's got this uh, company that they run, and they do, you know, service industry, yeah. commercial type thing. But they started by doing a wedding video oh, okay. shot in 7D, yeah. and they labeled it in Vimeo saying, you know, 7D footage. But they told a very compelling story. Mm-hmm. And the NFL came searching online, a division, a you know, a, uh, a what do you call it? A, a an advocate yeah. was looking for something, and this is oh, I saw your footage, uh, sample footage on the seven D, but your storytelling that was great. We we're looking for something like this for these vignettes. We're going to these short documentaries we're oh, doing. Nice. So they got picked up, yeah. And so they went from wedding videos. To now they were being a service company that, they, and then they were winning uh, Emmys of some sort. And it just then they grew their company, you That's know. Great, and it's, yeah. but they learned their storytelling from a different perspective than a lot of sort of like if you're doing like traditional narrative, which is like. Okay, script writing. Yeah. You know, script writing 101, this is how you tell your three-act structure, yeah. and then, then this is how you pitch, and this is how you get your stars involved. So we get there's like there's this break of like narrative filmmaking that way, and then this this explosion of sort of documentary filmmaking that has to tell – that has had to learn how to tell stories in a different way. Yeah, I mean, know? I think what I – so I – especially after being in this industry as long as I've been now, 20 years, I'm like <laughs> – I don't – I literally don't distinguish really between documentary and – and scripted and the, I mean that's not true what I mean by that is you know you're still telling a story how you tell mm-hmm. it is you know that's at your disposal and it's funny how television really pulled from documentary you remember listen The Office uh, or, or before those NYPD Blue or Homicide mm-hmm. they kept pulling from documentary to make television seem more authentic and what was amazing to start seeing in the last few years is documentary pulling from narrative scripted yeah. narrative film I kind of like the idea of nonfiction and fiction, almost like because right. that makes more sense in my eyes. Because they're blending to this point anyway now that you know nonfiction. So all these documentary films are using like steady cams and recreations, <laughs> and because let's be honest, a documentary is so heavily skewed by the person creating it. Yeah. Like, and that's okay. Like, it's a perspective, and you know, you, you know, I remember being in school for this at University of Buffalo, and you know, back in the '90s, my teachers were like really against any kind of like faking a documentary. Like it was still at that point they thought there was some integrity or at least they thought there should be journalistic integrity. Yeah, yeah, yeah part <laughs> of it. But you know, it comes down to that and but all the time admitting and in telling us as students teaching us that like where you set up your camera, even if it's a security footage, like the angle, the perspective is going to influence what scene. So like, you know, you're already manipulating everything anyway. Mm-hmm. And uh the the interesting thing about documentaries is they have the veil of authenticity because it's supposed to be a you know, documentary and not yeah. And I'm like, that's BS. It's all it's all a creation. And, um, you know, I think you can get closer to the truth, right? What is the truth, right? I think you can get closer to it sometimes <laughs> by a scripted narrative than you can get by a documentary. Yeah. But again, that's somewhat subjective. So, you know, I tried... What, the thing that I really appreciated when we were doing Original Fair is Kelly and I were really interested in format. 
we were like, how do we make a format that's very traditional, but then also can, we can play within this new medium? So if you notice, like if you watch one of our episodes, mm-hmm. it's like cold in, a cold open that lasts like 15 to 30 <laughs> seconds that'll let you know what you're getting into. Then there'll be the title sequence that lasts 15 seconds. And then you might not notice it, but there's a definite arc or structure to almost all of our episodes where you know we started out just filming, not knowing where we we're going to end up. But we thought about it a lot before we showed up and filmed on location and then we thought about it while filming about how, what's the beginning, middle, and end of the scene. Like, so I'm filming one camera, but the whole time I'm thinking, like, here's the cutaways. How am I getting into the scene? How am I get, what's going to happen? How am I getting out of it? And then when we sit down in the editing bay, we do the same thing. Okay, where's the beginning, middle, and end? And we do that through a three-act structure for the whole episode. Yeah. So, we're, like, we're thinking structure the whole time. It feels very loose. It feels very jazzy, right? Because it's, like, f- freeform in many ways. And because one of the reasons we get away with it has the veil of authenticity because it's a single camera show mm-hmm. because it's one camera and it feels very like, you know, it's, I'm not going to say jumpy, but it has this idea that it feels very real. And I, the only way I knew how to get a show made like this, where I was like, all right, what are our resources? Just me and a camera. Well, that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. Cause now it's going to seem much more like what works online. People like something authentic online. Mm-hmm. It has to seem like it's a personal, real thing. And the struggle was getting Kelly to open up and, she, it turns out Kelly's just great being natural on camera. It's so, you know, as an actor, it's yeah, yeah, so yeah. freaking... People, to get people to act like themselves on camera is so hard, especially right. non-actors. And it turns out Kelly's just good at being natural on camera. She has zero ambition. She does not want to be an actor. But um, that helped both of us. It helped our jobs immensely. Um, but at the same time, you know, people want that authenticity. So getting her to actually open up, not just in front of the camera about her life and who she is, I was constantly trying to push her to reveal more because I thought it was interesting. I'm like, the more you can, the show can be about you and your perspective because it totally is. I'm like, I think the more, the more the audience will connect with you. And uh, yeah. anyway, I, I'd like to think that I'm right about that. Uh, we're still, you know, for Kelly, the whole thing is she's like, it's not about me. It's about these people I'm profiling. Mm-hmm. Like, I get that, but you have to be the perspective. It's her POV. It, well, it's definitely from an audience perspective. The, yeah. There's, you know, I guess in the world of on- online entrepreneurship, they were always talking about, you know, if you're trying to find, you know, what niche you want to get into, you know, you were talking about the food industry. Like, yeah. It just keeps going. But now we got into like so many sub niches of the food industry. Oh God, yeah. You know, or fashion or, you know, whatever it might be. So you just have to be like, the best of you can you can be within that very specific niche and then um but that's important for the audience because even if your show is similar to another show an audience member might decide i just like original fair better because of kelly yeah it, okay. i mean it, it, it could be something like you know the other show's fine it's sometimes the host gets a little too this way yeah. or that way or thinking about like real estate too real estate shows yeah you know why do why do why are the property brothers attractive to, you know? Oh yeah. It's all the personality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's, but I think that you're right. Cause authenticity because of this digital age, we, I think subconsciously need that. Yeah. And, and we are driving for it. And, um, you know, um, I was just thinking to the, you know, just the recent, you know, election and so on like that. I mean, people were looking for, you know, there's that big surge for Bernie Sanders as well. Yeah. You know, on one side and Donald Trump on the other side. Whether it was perceived authenticity, is that? Oh my God, it's a, it's a yeah. big part of it. You know, politics aside, I mean, granted, yeah. I Kelly and I traveled all across the United States into, you know, where does our food come from? People <laughs> growing it. They're 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 in rural areas of this country, and I have such a love and you know, 
I have such a love for it because coming from the cities, you know, I, I was not exposed to a lot of this growing up. Um, granted, I lived somewhat in Long Island where farm country started, but that was as a kid. <laughs> but um, no, but like going actually into a lot of these different parts of the country and I could see, you know, you could feel it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I could feel like these are parts of our country that are being decimated. They literally have no industry. Um, you know, Walmart, um, Target, you know, how do people access food? You have to drive an hour to a Walmart, even though they're growing most of our food, all these places, that food is like corn and soy that's getting shipped around the world. And it's going like in this, it's owned and bought by all the same big corporations. So the, you know, main street's gone. There's no local business besides like, you know, commodity farming. So they've been struggling for decades and nobody gives a shit really. And not only that, you never even hear their stories. Like, I love going out and telling the stories of these people. One of our favorite episodes we ever did was um, Craig Watts in North Carolina was a chicken farmer for Purdue. And it's the whole economic setup of how they grew, raised chicken. They essentially pushed all the liability and uh, and cost onto the farmers. Yeah. Big surprise, right? Yeah. And they turned into this whole competition-based thing where, like, the best growers would get, like, all this uh, rewards, and then the, the, the ones on the bottom would get creamed like you know they'd be like starvation diets and then um but you know they could also punish you by sending you bad chickens because they own all the chickens anyway it's highly like it's such a detailed crazy um setup um that your average person has no clue they just they have to spend an extra dollar on chicken at the store they're pissed yeah that's all they know like oh well this one's 4.99 this is 5.99 i'm gonna take the 4.99 one right that's what they know so like we went and told his story um and it was by far one of the most like shocking and amazing stories we were able to do because he, because they're contractors, he could have anybody on his farm. There's no ag ag law saying he can't have people on his farm. He owns it, so like he let us in. He let media in, and Kelly sought this out and was one of the first. We were one of the first people to break the story. A few other outlets picked it up as well. Kind of got a little more attention than us, um, but at the same time, I mean, you go online. That's on our YouTube. That's like, you know. 150,000 people watch that and that doesn't even include the PBS audience that's in the millions. Yeah. So like, and it, for me, there was like really important storytelling and I can guarantee you like nobody's listening to it was listening to him until he spoke up and let media in and you know, the storytelling we'll do in some of these little farms, you know, it's such a different world and then people are like mystified that people voted for Trump. I'm like, no, because they just, nobody's going to listen to him and they were like, fuck the system. Mm-hmm. It really, they don't really care about Trump. Sure, they kind of like him because he's a celebrity, right? They don't really follow a lot of the news, right? I'm generalizing, but right? they're not they're not reading the New York Times every day like like us liberal Jews in in, uh, in New York, right? <laughs> right. But you know, th- nobody's listening to him, so they went for this you know fucking cult of personality, yeah. and it's a shame because I know everybody's going to get screwed by it. But I don't fault anybody for it. I saw it happening. I mean, I saw the writing on the wall. I just was like. And I can guarantee you, if it was Bernie Sanders who got the nomination, it might have been a different race because there was a, a there's a huge popul populist. What was it? Um, people are really just want something different. They know they're getting screwed. They don't fully understand why because it's so complex. Mm-hmm. And to understand each of these issues, food, you know, the economy, uh, it just go down the list. Media, everything's yeah. changing so fast. Um, technology is changing and culturally we don't know how to keep up with it and we do know that the economic elites are just rising higher and higher and the rest of us are now fighting over the scraps on the bottom yeah i mean things are going to not they're not going to get much better i don't think in the near term um so what can you do as a content creator well first of all you do have the power to share your voice Mm -hmm. right it's so much it's so accessible now so that's encouraging the problem is now sorting through the the bullshit like there's just so much fake there's so much opinion without any fact to back it up 
Um, but at the same time, it is more of a democratic place for voice. So, you know, get it out there, build an audience. They're, you know, they're out there, you know, and tell stories that matter. Truthfully, like we've always sacrificed taking a big payout for doing stuff that, you know, we feel is valuable for us. Like that stuff that should be said, talked about big dream, that documentary we did. I mean, do you think anybody was going to seriously spe spend a lot of money to get young women of color who are in technology fields to like talk in their own voice? Like who was going to really do that? We knew if we said no to that project, nobody was going to do that. And there was other competing documentaries at the time about coding. And guess what they did? Their storytelling. It was exactly what I thought it would be. It's, and I don't mean to dog on them, but I just hate this kind of format. Sit down in expert interviews that essentially is the narration. Like, what about the people? Like, let's yeah. see Verite. Let's see it in their own lives. Let's see them talking and, and being themselves. And, and that's essentially, anyway, yeah, I, yeah. I can go this is gonna bring it to a whole other place. But anyway, so we made that film, and I do feel like that was one of the most valuable things we ever did. And the show itself, like, if we wanted to make a, 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 a food show that was like, you know, look at what everybody else is doing. Um, it's, it's usually like a, a fat white guy shoving food in his, in his mouth. And like, that's the show. Like, eh, look what I'm doing. I'm somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even I love Anthony Bourdain. He essentially created, <laughs> like the reason we have a show is Anthony Bourdain. But like, that's kind of the format. It's like this white male, you know, guy who's going around eating a ton of food. Right. Like, you know, I, to me, it's like, there's way more interesting stories to be told. And, uh, you know, and I, I'd be encouraged if people, you know, yes, you should be successful. Yes, you want to make money. We all want to make money. But like, how can you take that format and subvert it a little? You know, use what works, but subvert it a little to say something interesting and unique that actually adds value beyond the dollar. It's interesting that you brought up, like, you know, you never want to be kind of like ahead of the curve. You kind of just want to be right at the right place with yeah. the apex. But you're, but you're acknowledging, you know, sort of the shows of, you know, the white, you know, the white male walking yeah. around eating food, and but that's sort of the gateway that got people into this sort of oh, yeah. uh, uh, of genre. And so now you're able to like let's break it down a little bit more, yeah. and now we can do a subgenre off that yeah. for those who want something deeper. Yeah. And so like riding that crest, and, for sure. And I notice, I mean, I guess it's sometimes like you know in online, you know, marketing stuff they talk about clickbait, you know, having the the, the effective headline, yeah. And all about everything about copywriting before the internet has always been about um, the headline. Is supposed to get you to read the the, the second sentence, and mm -hmm. the next sentence is supposed to keep going down this slippery slope until you have some sort of call to action to yeah. buy something or do yeah. something. But it's interesting for me in Film Trooper. You know, I've been sort of focusing a lot on like film marketing or film you know distribution in terms of the small backyard indies of yeah. like where do you go once you're finished and where do you where do you put your film and do you, what are the marketing aspects and selling aspects when you don't have a distribution deal, you don't have a partnership, things like that. However, the ir irony of all that stuff is that it's, again, it's still like a small, small subsection of this big uh, term called like filmmaking. Because if you do like just a straight up like Google Analytics search, filmmaking brings in, I don't know, like a million uh, searches a month. Mm -hmm. But under that film, under filmmaking are, the three popular search terms are cinematography, acting and screenwriting. Oh, interesting. So those get like 100,000, half a million views a searches a month. Yeah. The reason is that that's always at the beginning part of the stage as uh, my friend Jason Brubaker who runs filmmaking stuff and also works at Distributor, he says that those are always the most exciting parts of the filmmaking stage. Yeah. You're the acting, oh, the yeah. cinematography, screenwriting. Very few actually, you know, get through the bumps and bruises of making something to the end. 
Yeah. And when they're in, they're so depleted. And it's very interesting because if you do a search for like film business or film marketing or film distribution, um, the searches are like 1500, <laughs> 1500 a month. Oh my God. That's how small the, the, the desire or the need to know that type of stuff. But I can guarantee you so few people get to that point. Yeah. Um, uh, the thing that I would say that I love that you talked about though is, um, you know, because there are distribution outlets out there and they're constantly in need of content. And if you can just create the content, however you get it made, make it professional. You know, I would encourage anybody, you have a web series, you're trying to start out, like keep making it and then start contacting existing places where audiences are. Like, you know, there's so like Mike, Vox, like there's all these new millennial focused mm -hmm. um, places that like I have a series I'm developing with a, a local photojournalist called Highway 26 that's literally following highway 26 and doing these little like you know telling the story of the of this like is historic highway in oregon that bisects yeah. the state um but then also um you know it's just like a, a multimedia passion project on the side there's no money in it yet i'm sure there's grants i could try to go for and i might actually now uh, that that i have some time during the holidays to look into but you know and i'm like oh you know i'm gonna just do it because it's uh, the cost is so low i already own everything and it's like fun uh and then i'm like shoot when this is done like Say I do like five or six good stories, then I have something to show, and I can like send that around to, you know, all these existing, uh, you know, distribution outlets that are looking for content, and I can, you know, maybe I'll get a bite, and I can guarantee you they're looking for compelling content. You have something interesting to give them, you know. Yeah. I didn't. If it costs me very little money to create, because I already have all the gear from other projects, and then I can sell it to somebody else. Like, hey, I just made a profit. Anyway. That, and that's like a one way of looking at it for me. And then I also have another project that I'm developing. So, you know, I, um, uh, so that big dream documentary t got me engaged in this. Uh, it's a, it's a intersection of, oh yeah, that chair's broken. <laughs> I almost fell over. <laughs> Sorry. An, an intersection of, um, media, diversity and technology. There's like all these people. So I'm like floating in all these different communities and they all are aiming for the same goal. They're like, how do we get more? women and minorities into technology and media is saying the same thing. How do we get more diverse voices in media? And then, um, and you know, the diversity organizations are like, how do we get in, break into these, you know, these, uh, these worlds. So I'm, I'm how I see it. I'm sitting in the middle of all this and I've already built up this network from my documentary. So I'm, I'm, I'm an authority on it in some ways. And I come with some, you know, what would you call it? Uh, street cred? I have street yeah. cred. Yeah. And um, so I, I was looking for a new property, and my friend Jamila, who's she's black, her husband's Chinese, they have mixed-race kids. She's from Portland originally. I met her in New York City. She pitched to me this this uh, kid show, because she has a kid, one kid who's one, one who's three, uh, a, a cartoon that's all about like young minority kids in technology. And it's about teaching them how to use technology, but they're like superheroes. So it's giving role models for these young kids. So early on they say, oh, I can be a, I can be a computer scientist. I can get into technology. And it just made so much sense. Yeah. And I'm like, so now I'm developing that, you know, trying to pitch that around similar like we did with Big Dream to find funding to really get the thing off the ground. But it's like already thinking about who's the audience, where's the money? And I know the audience is there because we had a documentary that was like loved and embraced by this existing community. So right there's the audience. How do I sell to them? How do I get people to pay for it? And that's just like build it backwards. You know, like if you think I have this great idea, yeah. you really, I mean, and you hear it over and over again. If you go to films where they're like, who's your audience? Who's your audience? Who's your audience? And that's, you know, yes, start there and then think about what you can create that you love. That is your passion that can be, you know, sold to them, marketed to them. 
that's it. It's interesting because in the it's a sort of this this concept of push pull mm-hmm. and uh, like searching for an audience or the buyer. Um, and like in real estate investing, the concept is you find a, a piece of crap house because normal realtors aren't going to touch it. Yeah. You know, so you as an investor can fix it, rehab it. You know, mm-hmm. you're finding an investor. Say, look, I found this this dilapidated house. It's I can get it at this price. The fix up is only marginal, and yeah. you can put it on the market for that much higher. Um, so the problem is, the concept there is you're finding you you found a house, but then you're trying to find a buyer. And the the difference is those who've been successful at real estate investing mm-hmm. first find the buyers. So they they they, they already know. Yeah, yeah. They're like, look, no, I'm looking. I goes, yeah. I, no, I have a list of people that this is what they do. They invest in homes. Yeah. So all I do is ask them what they're looking for. Yeah. So now they give me a shopping list. Yeah. My job is to find find something that fits. Yeah. That so I I'll, I'll, I'll drive past this little like one bedroom house. I go, that's not in their parameters. That's yeah. not what they're going to buy. So why would I spend time working on a deal that's not is going to fall through? So this thing of like just knowing the buyers, knowing what they want, and then you just approach it like a shopping list. Yeah. Like your same concept is there's this distribution companies out there or distributors or outlets, exhibitors, yeah. everything. What do they really want? And can do, is there something there that you can provide? Yeah. There's another thing too. It's like, um, there's like two ways to start a business. Um, they talked about the push-pull. So one is you, I came up with an idea and then I'm going to make it and then I'm going to push it on everybody else to buy it. Versus, wait, let's start with the, the audience or the customer base, see what their problem is, and see if I can't just build a build product a solution to, for that. Yeah. And then that's just mining. And it's and the, the ones that I've seen successful in, the, in terms of the capitalism aspect of things have been a lot like that. Yeah. Sometimes they're not even the most sexy. Like, we all want to be create something to make a, you know, yeah. a landmark. We want to be like Apple or some sometimes, yeah. you know, something that comes around once in a while, but there's always these sub companies that are like, take somebody's amazing, you know, push forward and they do like a bastardization of it, but yeah. they're able to monetize it. <laughs> no, I mean, it's, it's, it's actually such a, it's, it's kind of frustrating as a creator where you, you know, what I was saying recently, like I, I haven't, I, I always have these little sayings that help me like kind of make sense of it all. But I was like, my big one recently is, it's not about the idea. It's about the execution. Yeah. Because everybody yeah. has a good idea. I can guarantee you, like, every single person in Portland right now has a great idea for a film or a documentary, and they're not wrong. It is a great idea. Who's going to do it? Who's going to execute it? How are you going to get it made? And, like, actually, in the execution, in the creation of it, that's where all the art is. Like, the idea is actually kind of meaningless. Yeah. And, like, that's as I get older and older, that's something I just kind of realize more and more. And the people who are really good, they can consistently do a great job on the creation and then sell it. You know, it's like, yeah. and it's almost maddening to me how many times people come up and they're always like, because they know I, you know, made documentaries, I made, uh, you know, sh- web series and stuff. And they're always like, oh, I have this great idea. And it's like, oh, God. Oh, and no. you just have to be polite because they're not, yeah. they're not trying to be <laughs> insulting or mean. But you're like, you're like, come on, man. Like, just then, just, I, what I always tell people, I'm like, that's a great idea. You should really do that. Yeah, then, right now. Then, Here's then, your yeah. phone. Go for it. No, and then they, people get a little <laughs> flustered too, and they're always like, really? And I, and I know part of that too is the idea that, you know, because making it is super hard, mm-hmm. and it's it's going to cost twice as much, and it's going to take twice as long, and you're just going to be like, it's going to be grueling, and when you get to the end of it, you might question why you did it anyway. But like, yeah, and that's the only way to do it. And there's no other way. And it's funny because, you know, how many people are waiting for somebody else to give them either permission 
or to give them money, right? They're like waiting for somebody else to invest in that, their idea that they're unwilling to even invest themselves. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you something about, yeah. as we wrap this up, yeah. the... Because I was just thinking when you're when you're talking about some, something when you were mentioned there just reminded me of when you said that when you started out like a service business yeah and um, versus now being a content creators yeah we're owning the license and they're able to exploit the license and putting a price tag on that exploitation yeah. that allows you to make a living yeah like you said you guys you says we're doing a food and travel show like oh that's our dream you're yeah. like you're like yes but there's here's the hard truth of it yeah. Let me ask you, in the world of service, the service um, industry, in terms of this type of level of service industry, um, I'm going to give this scenario of like how like the, uh, the world of like the film markets work. Yeah. And this is like an over-exaggeration of like how people are really making money. Yeah. <laughs> like the small percentage of them are. Because there, there's three types of producers. There's the, um, the creative producer. Uh, they come and go, and then there's in that world, yeah. and then there's the uh, line producer, the nuts and bolts of how yeah. you get a production done. And there's that sales and business manager producer, the yeah. ones who can get the deal done. So the sales and business manager, um, they have like this long-standing relationship with a uh, a buyer. Yeah. Again. Yeah. And so that say this buyer is in Japan, and the Jap Japanese film buyer says, "I want." To, he goes, um, "They will buy a film of anything like uh, a big monster destroying a city." So I show him a poster, like here's this big monster destroying a city with a helicopter, mm -hmm. and that relationship I have with this Japanese film buyer says, okay, I'll give you you know two million dollars if you know if you complete that film by X amount of date. Mm -hmm. So now you have a deadline. You get this promise note. You take the promise note for two million dollars, go to a bank and get a loan for it. Yeah. And so now you're gonna make the film for two million dollars. So that's what we think. Yeah. But the what they do is they pocket one and a half million dollars of it and make the film for, for five hundred thousand. Yeah. And so then everybody's fees are based off the five hundred thousand dollars, you mm -hmm. know, the director, writer's oh, yeah. fee, and the film gets made, finished, loan gets paid, you know, it gets delivered to the the Japanese buyer. The Japanese buyer delivers the money, the loan gets paid back, and they do it rinse over repeat. I heard this sometimes that could be very similar to a service deal, where a company comes to an ad agency, says, "Hey, you know, this is what we want, and here's the budget. We're going to give mm -hmm. you a million dollars." Okay. The ad agency turns around. They hire a independent yeah. production company that says, "We're this ad or this campaign. The budget for this portion of it is ten thousand mm -hmm. dollars." And the the ad agency may probably hold on to about half a million dollars of that um, deal they just made with the big company. Um, is that something that is similar to? your experience or others that you've heard? No, I mean, not for, um, we actually, as a service company, that's what we used to do. I mean, not as egregious, in fact. We had, no, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, it's funny because the, the way we, as a small shop, were able to compete is because we didn't, hold, we, we made less money ourselves. And that's how you can build yourself up in some ways is you, uh, you undercut the competition, right? So when we were getting hired to do branded content, yeah, I mean, we would negotiate, we would have a lot of freelancers. We had a few people on staff and it was cheaper having them on staff than hiring them as freelancers because they would work on three projects at once, right? We'd have like three clients and they're constantly working. So they're only getting paid their salary, um, their monthly salary, but we're making money on each project we bring in. Um, and then we hire freelancers and, you know, what we are paying them on the books is very different than what we told the, you know, that we budgeted for that we gave over to the client. But, you know, that's just, a lot of that's a like a ten percent production fee that gets slopped on that goes right to the company and you know plus a little bit extra, but you know so that was just kind of how business is done. Um, and now in this situation, 
I'm taking essentially because to, for us to be able to create this web series is it was the reason we were able to build original fare up from nothing is because it was two people. Mm-hmm. So in essence, we were getting zero line items for everything. Like we right. we had enough to pay our rent and that's about it. And it, you know, I, I actually laugh because I, I tried to hire some people to help out on original fare to just in, in a way I was looking for trainees. My, my deal with them was going to be like, all right, I'll train you because you, you don't have any show experience. You have no like, you know, anything more than just little sizzle things or doing your own little project on the side. And they work for like a, you know, a big company doing like internal videos or something. And I'd be like, okay, I'm only going to pay you $500 on the, and to work on this entire like 16 minute long episode. But I'm going to show you how to cut a scene and how to like, you know, do this format and how to work in this on this level. And I was amazed at how bitter and angry they were or like how it was just the trade off didn't seem right to them. They're like, but you're only paying me five hundred dollars. But I'm like, you realize that was five hundred dollars out of my personal pocket. Like there was no money. There's no line item for an editor because we're not making enough money on the web series yet to pay anybody. So I've been, you know. So the Z, the you know this five hundred dollars that seems really pathetic to you is money I'm taking out of my own pocket to invest in you because I want to train you to eventually as we're making more money which we're starting to do now, I can like step back and you know develop other projects which I'm starting to do now as my wife is hiring more people on with original fare, so it's like then you get that job and you like nobody else is going to just hire you to be like lead editor on a show, so I'm going to train you to to take over this position as long as you're willing to put in the work and how consistently, I don't know if it's an age thing. Maybe I'm also just like overvaluing <laughs> what we're offering, but I'm like, God, that just didn't seem fair to them yet. I'm like, well, it's not fair that I get paid $0 for a year editing zero yeah. for coloring. I get a, paid a little bit for shooting and directing, but that's okay. Like it's a trade off I'm willing to do because it's an investment. And, um, I was just a little mystified that like, and maybe it is a millennial thing. I hate to dog on the next generation, but the the idea that like, no, no, I, I should get paid. This is what editors are paid. I should get paid that. It's like, well, you got to work towards it. Like you don't have a, a resume that says you do this yet. I've never seen your work that you do this. I'm going to be, I'll, I have to concur with you. Yeah. Um, being at PlayStation where we had to hire a lot of different, you know, professionals and so mm-hmm. on. We saw the younger generation come in it was mystifying it was absolutely mystifying yeah. this I'm, there's this this level of entitlement that was yeah. out of this world and I i'm, I'm like... going to add to this though by saying i've i found a few local kids here who are fucking awesome like yeah. i've identified them they're like my mentees because they their attitude is like i don't care i'm gonna learn and honestly now when i get jobs where i can hire somebody like i'll do a pickup gig i did a directing producing for some bbc segments for this comedy thing that came here um which is good because I'm I'm really wanted to like change it up. I've been doing this like, you know, on location verite filming over and over again for years, and I feel like it's getting to the point where it's like second nature to me, and that's boring. Like I'm trying to like I want to get back into expanding my, you know, experiences. But uh, so I had to hire some crew for the first time in a few years. Went right to the, my, the people that I identified that did that were really hard workers that had the right attitude. I went right to them. And I paid them a really great rate. Like they didn't even have to negotiate with me. They got that full rate that I quoted to the, you know, I wasn't even skimming money off of it Yeah, yeah. because they deserved it because they earned it. And that's what, you know, because they also worked on my little projects on the side for reduced rate or for free volunteered. So then when the money's there, they get the money. And that's like an honor thing. That's like a, my word is bond, right? That's yeah. the only way business can work really. And um, so when you identify those ones, they're rare. You just hold tight and you know that in the future, at some point hopefully you'll be asking them for work and for money and like so i've identified a couple and it's funny i had one and i was grooming her and then kelly stole her from me <laughs> just cool because kelly's trying to build more of a female 
like original fair uh, majority of the audience is women like 60 percent 60 something percent um it's funny because when we were see people wanted to buy the show early on um the offers were terrible um but what we kept hearing over and over again they were like yeah people don't want to see a woman in that role Mm. really like over and over again even a, a woman distributor uh for a major company i'm not going to name was like maybe just even get a male co-host because people don't want to see women doing that kind of dirty work and um and it's interesting that majority of our audience is women because guess what it turns out people will watch that if you create that content for them. yeah yeah and uh it's just that idea of like they only want to do what's been made before and this is something a little different but um so but anyway kelly's whole thing with me is she's like you film too masculine and I was like, what are you talking about? And I didn't understand what you meant. And then we hired a female photographer to come with us um, to do two camera. We rarely do, but she wanted to show me, I think, an experiment and push the, the visual style. And we got back to the editing room and God damn it, I film really masculine. Like it's all action-y and like strong angles and like, you know. Um, and then this, the woman we hired as a photographer, beautiful detail and subtlety that I never would have picked up on and saw. And so, you know, I'm limited. And Kelly is like, I want to push the show more in this direction now. And I have to say, like, I'm peeling off now, which allows me to develop my own projects. But man, she really net. Like, that's why she's a creator. But I was like, she and she has a vision she wants and she's right. I'm just not going to be able to fully get it. But anyway, so she stole like she's stole a, 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 a videographer, producer that I was grooming to like help me out on projects. Yeah. Kelly, all I had to do, I made the mistake of being like, Kelly, I can't do it today. I have something to do. Can you just hi- like hire this girl? And then now they're going to be working together. <laughs> That's right. It's my own doing. It's like uh, football. It's like watching you know Tony Romo get hurt, and now uh, this track uh, Prescott kid is basically Coming taking just, over. Just I mean, it was like it happens. Well, the Tom Brady, yeah, yeah, Tom Brady took over for Drew Bledsoe, and or you know what happened to Joe Montana. So yeah. it's like no, it's true. Now it's, you're Joe Montana. No, it's good. <laughs> no, in a way though, it's the idea of you know as a as the photographer on the project like god that like burns a little right but then as i'm also the producer and co-creator yeah and you know it's funny because i thought i was would be better at just being being able to say honestly like this is right this looks better this is a better product um but my ego is a little attached to i really enjoy doing the work like it turns out one of the things that i learned again through having to do everything myself is how much i love the work how much i love the day-to-day process being on set, filming, whether it's on set, on location, yeah. I love that stuff. That's why I got into this industry. Yeah. And um, and it, it, you know, it, I didn't recognize how much I was enjoying it, and then the thought of having to not do it was like a little off-putting. Um, <laughs> but that's but you know, the idea of being I'm supposed to be executive producing and producing and directing. Right. So I got to get back to the things that I set out to do when I was a, since I was a kid. Yeah. Um, and focus more on that because I really love it and miss it. And I'll tell you, directing the comedy spots that I did for BBC, like with a crew uh, on location, I was like, God, it felt like so easy to slip right back into it. And mm-hmm. I hadn't done it in a while. And um, that's when I was like, OK, I'm going to, you know, I'm things happen for a reason if you're smart enough to recognize it. And now I'm like, OK, I'm back on track. I'm back on focus uh, as much as I'm going to miss, you know, you know, being up to my waist in, you know, water with a camera that if I drop it, it'll, you know, be broken and, uh, you know, waves washing over me. But, you know, anyway. Interesting. All good things come to an end. Before, one last thing I want to yeah. just before, as you, before we wrap up here. The the film, uh, the documentary you did. Yeah. Um, I just, the big time, what's it called again? 
Big dream. Oh, big dream. It's right in front of me. Yeah. <laughs> Literally, there's a poster right in front of me. I didn't say. <laughs> so, big dream. I was curious because that uh, the film coming out about the um, the black American um, women that worked on NASA with Kevin oh, Costner. Yeah. What's that film called? Uh, oh, um, it's funny. I just I just saw the big. We were at the theater last night. And I saw the big cutout. For yeah, it. I've been reading. I mean, because of the I'm in the yeah, diversity yeah. in se- sectors. Uh, yeah. I, I'm Listen, I don't have my phone on me. But anyhow, that yeah. film is coming out. Is there a way that because you own this license, can, are you able to piggyback off the the press? Potentially, of that? I have to admit, I've been a little bit looking in the using this film in the rearview mirror. Like I understand, uh, just because we, you know, we did make a little bit of money and it was a great ride, and now I have all these new projects I'm developing. I know that's kind of stupid because the truth is, like, we own it. So the more it gets attention, the better. But the, this yeah. is the problem with it being just two people. Yeah. There's a reason why there's like a marketing department and right, they, you know, right. um, and like lawyers who and people who can just exploit IP, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, so no, I mean, yeah, there's so many opportunities. In fact, when we met, uh, again, <laughs> got reacquainted the other night, there was a guy who runs the Ben Film Festival. Oh right. So the woman Rain Stemson Johnson, who I adore, who helped make Big Dream a reality, she lives in Bend. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it, the fact that she's been, like, MIA because of medical issues, yeah. like, the I meet the guy who runs a Ben Film Festival. He's like, how come I never heard of this film? Like, and I'm like, oh, Rain, she lives in your community. He's like, well, we have the festival, and also we have a yearly thing where we show films all year. Yeah. And they have, like, a revolving thing. He's like, why isn't your film submitted? I'm like, I didn't know it existed. Anyway, so, you know, I'm still going to find opportunities, and we're still making money off of educational distribution, mm-hmm. which I like because it's, like, really under the radar, but it's also going directly to the people we wanted to watch this film. You know, you're talking about finding your audience, yeah. getting educational distribution, that was the goal all along, to get it to young people. Like, honestly, I put that thing on Amazon, yeah, maybe some parents watch it with their kids, but like right now we have, we know who we targeted for that film and they're getting access to it. So I'm like, I make a little bit of money, the people I want to see, see it. So I'm kind of like, like I said, that thing's now in my rear view mirror in many ways, and I'm focusing on the new projects. Which is kind of a shame because I wish we had like an internal person who could just be like every day waking up and saying, "How do we get more people to watch this film, and how do more people make? How do we make more money off this film?" Yeah. But you know, we're just two people, so. Now it's that's a very good point. The, the takeaway it's like there's a reality of bandwidth. Oh my god, yeah, and on I can get, tell you from a creating content, uh, like God, like it's it's so draining all of it that um, yeah, you have to you get better at this as you get older is structuring your time. Yeah. Saying like, okay, I have like this time in the morning to work on this, whether it's marketing, research, I'm going to do writing now, I'm going to do editing here, I'm going to, you know, um, schedule a whole shoot day here. Like you have to be so much better at managing your time because that's the only valuable thing you own. And it's like, yeah, I've gotten a lot better at it. My wife would disagree with me, but I've gotten a lot better at it than I used to be. And it's really about just being efficient. Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember earlier in the episode or the the interview I mentioned, I'm, re- I'm finishing the book finally because I've, I've listened to it before. But mm-hmm. the book, uh, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. Well, let me guess. It's uh, like effective people. Scheduling is. <laughs> well, he, he's got this whole thing about it. There's one of the habits is this. There's, there's a big chapter about time blocking. Yeah. Where it's, it's essentially saying, like, first things first. Once you are able to decide, like, what really matters to push things forward in a most effective way, yeah. you have to make that first thing first. Um, because sometimes a lot of us will be busy time. We might feel like we're doing all this busy work, answering emails, doing social media stuff. God, emails and social media is the... Time suck. No, it's terrible. In fact, like, 
God, it's frustrating to me. I think most people who work in an office, um, the only reason they can justify their existence is by creating more emails and more social media. <laughs> and so it creates problems for, I'm an independent producer. I don't have time to waste. Like, yeah. I don't need to go back and forth five times. Like say yes or say no right away. It's like the nicest thing you can do is say no early. Don't string me along for five emails and not make up your mind and then get back to me two weeks later because you were doing all this. Like, you know, my whole thing is I just need to move quickly and in directions that are going to benefit me and I can't waste it. And it's, you know, it's incredibly frustrating when you deal with mega corporations and they have, you know, they have email chains, CC moving everyone. Chain, moving up yeah, the chain. Yeah, it's always yeah. moving up the chain and nobody ever wants to really say no or commit to anything because their job's on the line if they say yes. Yeah. So like instead you get these weird maybes that go on forever. Yeah, I mean, I, I would love, I should read that book, The Seven. I'd like to identify what I'm doing right and I'm sure there's a lot of things I'm screwing up, but out of default, yeah. no, but out of default, you kind of learn habits to survive. And one of them is scheduling, I think, is managing your time is the most important part. Yeah. 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 Well, I, I, you know, there's a ton more we could talk about, but I just want to thank you no, so much. Sure. I, you know, I love this stuff. This is, okay, again, one of my realizations of what I have to do now in my career is I was like, I've really been content letting my wife go out and seek out opportunities whether it's press marketing mm -hmm. promoting our uh, and i because i like just doing the work right ah, yeah. and that is such a lame cop out so my <laughs> whole thing now is i need to be d doing more interviews getting out in front reaching out to press marketing you know because there's just two of us yeah you know Definitely. anyway so awesome. i appreciate it thank you thanks man really appreciate it yeah my pleasure and that concludes my interview with Lucas Longacre, who in many eyes is living the dream i mean he's making a food and travel show with his wife that's a huge accomplishment, but as you heard, there's a lot that has to happen in order to make that dream work. And I hope you got a lot of value out of this episode, and if you did, think about leaving a ratings and review over on iTunes for me. Just go to filmtrooper.com forward slash iTunes, and it'll take you to the iTunes page where you can leave an honest rating and review for the show. But don't go away empty-handed, because if you are stuck trying to make your film right now, then I invite you to get this free gift that I offer over at freegearguide.com. That's freegearguide.com. It's an equipment list of everything that I made to make a feature film for $500 without a crew. Again, that's at freegearguide.com. It's my free gift to you. And thanks again for tuning in to the Film Trooper podcast, and I will see you next time. Film Trooper, filmmaking freedom for the independent.